0: This is the Bureau of Lost Culture, bringing you more stories from the other side, from the underground, from the counterculture. I'm Stephen Coates. In 1962, a young man was stepping gingerly down a staircase in an underground club in London, stepping into a wall of sound and excitement. He was there on assignment from Canada TV to make a film about the band. By that time he had already led a rather interesting life by many people's standards. Serving his national service in Scotland where he learnt Russian with 5,000 other young British people. And then spending time as a spy eavesdropping on Soviet pilots from the British listening station in Berlin. But what he experienced that afternoon in Liverpool in that basement club had such a powerfully transformatory effect on him that he had to stop his mini car on the way back to Manchester and throw up in a ditch. The band he'd been filming was, of course, The Beatles, just before their meteoric rise to fame. They had a transformatory effect on many, many, many millions of other people too, of course. They are the band that, in a way, overshadowed much of pop counterculture in the 60s. A band that went to immense global pop stardom and then deliberately stepped into the counterculture themselves. Many of the guests on this show have talked about the influence of the Beatles, both in terms of their music and in terms of their whole vibe, their whole world, and the transformatory effect that they had on London when they arrived there in the 60s. But that was the UK. Of course, they had a huge effect in America and around the world. And perhaps nowhere as strongly as the effect they had in the Eastern Bloc, and in particular in the Soviet Union. I know from my own experience talking to Russians who were alive in the 50s and 60s, the incredible, almost spiritual effect that the Beatles had on young people in those times. So I'm very pleased today to welcome that young man who stepped down that staircase, the Calvin Club, in Liverpool in 1962. Of course, he's not a young man anymore, but his life since then has been an extraordinary one, which in some ways has always been influenced by that experience, and also by his experiences as a spy. He's made many documentaries, he's been, received many awards, he is, of course, an OBE, and he made the film when the Beatles rocked the Kremlin. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome him to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Welcome, Leslie.
1: Thank you, Stephen.
0: Now, Leslie, you are our third OBE. Okay, all right.
1: Okay, well, I I tend to forget about that. It was a long time ago. Um, A richly comic experience getting the OBE, but there you go.
0: Hey, listen, if it's good enough for John Lennon, it's good enough for you, right? Say no more. Right. Now, listen, Leslie. Um, I've done an intro about you a little bit, but really, in a way, I think it would be much more interesting for people to hear from you. Who is Leslie Woodhead?
1: Well, it's, um, t- to tell it quickly, I am now um, just about a freelance filmmaker, but um, the important thing for me was that I joined uh, Granada Television as a graduate trainee. In uh, 1961, when the going was good and Granada TV in Manchester was, you know, the most progressive force in in television. So I got phenomenally lucky. They were um, interested in doing surprising material um, as well as crap material. So it was a it was a, a, a great moment and enormous luck that I landed there when I did. And then moved into mainly factual television. So um, I did the usual, you know, foot march through the, the, the foothills of the uh, local programmes and little, you know, bits and pieces. And then as uh, as, um, as I moved into the 60s, um, I was doing everything from politics to music to the arts to Right then, you know, politics local and international.
0: Right, so you cut your teeth at Granada and you made a huge amount of work there with them world in action series and all sorts of documentaries. And then in 1989, you became an independent filmmaker and since then have made an astonishing selection of films. Most recently, Ella Fitzgerald, but you made The Hunt for Bin Laden, The Day That Changed the World, Uh, The Children of Beslan, award winning documentary about the Beslan incidents. All sorts of films about Russia and Russia's nuclear warriors, etc. Your Dean Reed film, we should talk about that later. Um, You know, also, I mean, things like Strike, about the, um, you know, solidarity in Poland. And of course, the film that I've not seen, actually, but I'd love to hear more about it, is Invasion, about the invasion of of, uh, the Prague Spring in 1968. So you've had a whole history of both working for Granada, as you said, but also as an independent filmmaker and... Even before that started, you had this kind of Russian, Cold War, Eastern Europe connection, did you not, from your time in national service? Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I was, uh, a a bizarre accident, but I was one of the last generation of young men to do compulsory national service. Uh, and that, by chance, took me to um, a training in, as a Russian linguist. Um, at that point, um, Her Majesty's services were in need of uh, an intelligence capability basically to spy on the Cold War enemy. So about 5,000 young men were hauled off to a converted pig farm in Scotland, a secret base for learning Russian. And we crammed to A-level in about six or seven months. And uh, I completed all of that, um, which was, uh, we were taught by emigre Russians, teachers, scholars, uh, people who were drifting around Europe having having had to flee the evil empire. So um, that was entertaining. Um, It it was a first introduction, really, to the realities of, of the Cold War enemy. And uh, I became kind of a bit addicted about that.
0: Well, I mean, just let, just just explain that to me. So you're a sort of ordinary lad, Yorkshire lad. Yeah. But, you know, you get to 18. National Service, which for anybody who doesn't know, is the kind of compulsory time in the armed services or a similar thing after the war. You, you've been picked out um, as one of 5,000 young people who are spirited off to this uh, remote pig farm in Scotland where you are all... Um, taught Russian from scratch uh, in a period of months uh, uh, with the intention of spying. Is that it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it split rather. The really smart young people who completed the course um, went to Cambridge with the idea that they would be actual interrogators of either, you know, uh, Russians who'd fled or been picked up somewhere or other. Um, my Russian was never quite good enough for that, so I was on a subsidiary I, I joined the vast majority of graduates of this uh, pig farm setup um and I was uh, I, I was put to work learning the kind of Russian that you would need to listen in on uh, Russian broadcasts and the particular broadcast that I was being trained for was the air communications between uh, Russian fighter jets going in and out of Berlin and HQ in wherever the hell they were listening in on this. So um, we learned an extraordinarily limited uh, set of... I mean, while we were still in Scotland, we'd gone quite a long way with Russian. I mean, I was reading you know, the great Russian classics and good knows what. But that narrowed down when I got the spying role into listening in on these broadcasts. So um, without r- any real understanding of what wh- where I was going or what it would mean, In um, where, are we, where are we now? Yes, yeah, so at the end of 61, I was hauled off to listen in on um, on these uh, Russian pilots, and that was from a base in West Berlin.
0: Right. So you were taken out to West Berlin after you'd sort of finish your, you know, just sort of compressed hothouse training in Russian, but we. Were you also I mean you said then you described them as the enemy and I'm sure you say that with um you know kind of inverted commas as it were around it but I mean was was part of your training also a sort of ideological propaganda thing as well or was it just taken for granted that at that time everybody would would, would agree that the Russians were the enemy
1: Yeah I I no propaganda or ideology or anything like that they were just trying to force feeders enough language to do this this foot soldier's job, I always thought of myself as a foot soldier in the Cold War, of, of just listening in on, and what we did, just to, just to explain, I was dumped in this listening post in, in, in Berlin, um, and in a, in a fairly secret building, I think it was probably everybody knew about it. And what we had to do was, headphones on, tuned to a number of frequencies, and just write down everything that was said, which was satteringly dull. I mean, these pilots were saying, you know, I'm my undercarriage is down and luck, my fuel lights are glowing, uh, I'm on my final circuit. It was that kind of um, ungalvanizing material. And uh, I did that for seven or eight months, actually, in this uh, curious hangout in, in West Berlin. And um, you you got to a point where you could actually identify the individual pilots as they came and went by the tone of their voice. Um, But nothing, and the only time I remember anything happening of any interest, well, two two things. First of all, we got an intercept in which it became plain that they were targeting our building. I mean, the the coordinates of the artillery centered on RF Gata, which is where I was. Nothing ever happened about that, but it was a bit of a troubling moment. Mm. And the the other thing was um, that they were um, very interested in the minutiae of our training and so forth. Um, I... I was unaware of how much of that was supposed to be secure, but it didn't seem worth. Uh, I mean, and all of this, of course, was done by uh, writing on on a pad. Um, all of our intelligence was written down on a with carbon paper, if you can believe it. That was that was the sum total of our of our work. And at the time, I think we all felt well. As I said, there was no ideological purpose at all. Frankly. Few of us could work out what any purpose was to be served by writing down hundreds of pages of longhand transcripts of these exchanges.
0: I suppose the idea was that they might sort of let inadvertently let something slip, some piece of information, some nugget of useful, uh, 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 you know, info, intel as they call it now, which 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 there might there might be useful in some way in the kind of progression of the West's victory in the Cold War.
1: I think that's certainly true, but. Uh, I came to, when I did my film about how the Beatles, uh, my book about how the Beatles rocked the Kremlin, I talked to a a very knowing professor at the University of Nottingham who said, you're right, you were um, on the hunt for that. But more importantly, they weren't really interested in the content of the messages that you were scribbling down endlessly. What that was about was understanding troop movements in other words as he put it the russian military is a very big animal and when it moves in the forest it makes a it makes a good deal of rustling in, and so in other words we were trying to provide the west with early intelligence the big fear every day of our lives in berlin was that they were going to walk in over the bound over the border, which they could have done in a heartbeat and occupy our bit and then eventually West Berlin. And that was, it's hard now to recollect what a what a moment by moment fear this was. Mm. Um, it was not long after Hungary and all the horrors of that. Um, it was very, very nail-biting time
0: when you talk about hungary you mean the red army moving into uh moving into budapest yeah
1: exactly um and there was a feeling a fear that something like that could very easily happen in germ in uh, in west germany mm. and so we were really very much in the front line in fact my listening post in in berlin was so close to the eastern zone that um, you could actually hear the Russian soldiers singing at night in in their billets. I mean, it was that close. And one of the scariest parts of what I was supposed to be doing was to ascend a direction finding tower on the very very border of of, uh, of East Berlin and of the of the Soviet our Soviet friends, as we'd call them now. And the job was to, uh, with a very rickety piece of apparatus. To try and locate where the signals were coming from on the other side, um, which was like a wheel that you pressed down and spun around. And when the signal dipped, that was where it was coming from. The the bad news was it didn't work, this stuff. It really didn't. Um, It was hopelessly um, fallible and, and, and basically a useless toy. Um, so I and many of my colleagues used to fill our times with the the, the uh, Russian stuff chattering away in the background, and I used to listen to the voice of America jazz hour,
0: right? Will, 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 Willis Conover.
1: Yeah, Willis Conover. This is the majestic Willis Conover, and uh, I grew up with Willis Conover in my ear rather than the uh, the, the Soviet pilots.
0: You know, that's, in, that's interesting because, I mean, I made a program here about the kind of, as I call it, the invisible battle of the Cold War airwaves. And, you know, you were actually in Berlin, of course, and, you know, and, um, you know, there was the West broadcasting uh, deep into the heart, or as deep into the heart of the Soviet Empire as they could. And Willis Conover, of course, was one of the soft power uh, s- strategies, wasn't it, to target, um, you know, Soviet, Soviet youth with his jazz music and that program of course was so influential I'm sure you know it's better than I do because you listen to it but um you know I've talked to old Soviet old Russians who were around at that time and they talk about how important um it, that program was to them when they could tune in when they could avoid the Soviet jamming of course and the Soviets p- pumping literally you know millions of millions of millions of dollars or pounds or rubles into attempt into jamming the signal from from you guys
1: yeah, I remember that very well. Personally, I used to love finding him on my dial, and uh, he was, uh, in a way, he was as important to me as he was to the uh, to the Soviet audience because there wasn't a, ro- a, a huge amount of jazz around um, on conventional media at that time. A bit on BBC radio, but that was about it. I should say, my parents. My father was a, prof- a professional um, musician. And he played with a with a, a, a number of pretty hopeless, um, um, you know, not jazz bands, not swing swing bands, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And um, and oddly enough, one of his things in the mid thirties was to go and do a tour with his band, the wonderfully named Sid Seymour and his Mad Hatters, to Berlin. <laughs> so right. he he'd, he'd been there before me, but it's nice. off. Often struck me that somebody like Willis Conover. Well, there wasn't really anybody like Willis Conover. He was the man. Um, really, was a kind of uh, trailblazer for the Beatles mm-hmm. in, the, in the way that he um, made the contact musically between uh- East and West.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, also, of course, for you, Jazz, as you know, because that's been a theme throughout your life and work, isn't it? Your most recent film about Ella Fitzgerald, just one of those things. But I mean, uh, just to sort of go back then. So, Leslie, you finish your national service. You've had this time, strange time, your kind of life as a spy, uh, rather boring, some of it. uh, But uh, at the same time, right on the border of East and West in the Cold War. Uh, and you come back, you start working at Granada TV and, you know, as you say, it's sort of a dream job and you're, you're making lots of work, some of it pop work, some of it serious work. But this kind of theme for you, this Cold War East West relations theme, it is there throughout, uh, you know, many of the films that you did later. I mean, 1968, you did a film called Invasion about the Soviet invasion of, uh, of, of, of Czechos- Czechoslovakia. And also then, you, you know, then you went on to make the uh, strike, which is about the rise of solidarity in Poland. And of course, that, I mean, that whole thing with solidarity was, you know, the precursor to perestroika, wasn't it? It was the, the precursor, some people would say, to the end of the, as it's now been called, the First Cold War, as, as we're, we're now in the second one. But um, uh, so, you know, you you did sort of bookmark these um, significant times in the Cold War. West 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 Berlin, late 50s, 1968 Prague Spring when the Soviets invade Czechoslovakia and then, you know, Solidarity in the 80s when, you know, uh, when the when the empire is about to crumble and fall. Um, and then I, I, this is all kind of circling us back to the story of, uh, you know, how the Beatles affected the, the Cold War. As Art Troitsky, our mutual friend, says in, in your documentary, you know, Art's claim, of course, is that the Beatles... Uh, had more effect than all the propaganda, and even, in fact, <laughs> rather grand claim than the um, the, the nuclear threat uh, in, in bringing around the end of the Soviet Empire. But Paul well, we was this...
1: never was never under, would never underplayed anything if could let it sort. <laughs> yes, a, a, a dear valued friend, but he was um, he was in no doubt whatever about the significance of the Beatles in the collapse of the Berlin Wall and what happened afterwards.
0: Yeah. So in your case, of course, your story, again, with the Beatles, went right the way back to your early years at Granada. And, of course, you get this... So I think I understood from what you said earlier, is is that you were commissioned, way to go and film this new, at that time, new, pretty unknown band who were ripping it up in the Cabin Club in Liverpool. Is that it?
1: Well, in in detail, we were... I mean, I can't begin to describe how primitive... These things were. but I was a researcher on a strand of tiny little two, three, four minute films that we were making about um, contrasts in our region of Northwest England. In other words, we had like, you know, the last toffee maker in Oldham contrasted with somebody who was putting up um high energy cable over the Tan and Pennines pretty pedestrian stuff. But one of these things, the producer for this nightly magazine show said, why don't we do something about contrasts in music? So we went across the Pennines to Yorkshire and filmed the Brighouse and Race Street brass band, and did the the Men of Brass, and then cast around for the most, uh, the thing most unlike this, uh, that was looking forward in our region. And one of my uh, uh, young research colleagues at Granada said, "I know what. Um, there's this there's these kids in Liverpool haven't made any records yet, but they're getting a certain amount of attention attention. Why don't you ring up a man called Brian Epstein and see, you know if he if he'd be open? To you coming and making a little film with his lads, so i did that spoke to brian and of course he was only to this is this is when they're trying out with Decca. They still haven't got, got a, a, a contract of much significance so they're yearningly keen to do this so brian invited me and a couple of other uh, trustees from Granada to come down to the Cavern Club. Well, first of all, to the uh, Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool and meet him there. And I looked around and I thought, well, where is he? Um, Because the only man in the, the whole vast lobby at the Adelphi was a very smartly dressed, posh looking bloke. And I thought that can't be a rock and roll musician. But of course, it was Brian Epstein. And he said, why don't you come ar- across to the cavern and meet the lads?" So we wandered off through the, uh, through the gloom of Liverpool back streets and arrived at a um, rather unsalubrious set of stairs leading down um, into, well, God knows where. where. And up the stairs, um, I heard this thrilling noise, which was the Beatles. Who were playing to a bunch of kids on a on a sunday evening um and I was completely blown away. I mean I was and am a modern jazz fan, so this wasn't really my music at all, mm-hmm. but in fact, I was pretty fed up with rock and roll because my my mother ran the music shop associated with my father's musical instrument shop, and she was playing and required to play endless. You know, Bill Haley and Elvis Presley, which 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 I thought was junk because I was by then a fully addicted jazz fan.
0: Right. So rock and rock and roll sounded quite sort of primitive and a bit basic and naive to you. You'd moved you'd moved on. But listen, Leslie, can I just can I just ask you? So is that still a vivid picture in your mind of descending these stairs back in 1962? Um, in August. I mean, can you still see it? Can you still hear it? In fact, can you sort of, you know, as you walk down those stairs and you can hear this kind of racket coming up?
1: Stephen, I can still smell it. I mean, it was a very, very vivid atmosphere. It was, first of all, it was full of a a bunch of uh, kids um, who had become Beatles fans. Um, The walls were kind of dripping with sweat. It was a most unsalubrious place. But it was well you can tell as i speak now it's it's a a scene and a thing i will i will not forget ever partly because of what then went on to happen to the four lads who were doing their thing on the primitive stage at the cabin club um and partly because it was in itself completely thrilling and remarkable
0: right so what you're what you're saying there is is you're saying that okay you know everything changes once memories change uh, as a result of subsequent events. So obviously the Beatles went on to be the most famous band in the world, probably the most influential band in the world. So of course that would imprint itself on your on your memory of that event anyway. But you're also saying that setting aside that, it was just thrilling.
1: The, the, the music was galvanising actually. Um, very simple. Um very kind of bassy and then you can imagine the speakers were very primitive but there was a a visceral excitement about about what was coming off that stage and i can remember it to this day i then went um i went went backstage to meet the the soon-to-be fab four this was by the way quite a, a, a crucial time in their evolution because they had only just a week before sacked pete best their original drummer and ringo was a new part of the band in fact i think this may have been the very first gig he ever did publicly with with them and i remember standing in the audience while we were um, waiting to go backstage and i was surrounded by by kids saying um we want Pete, we want Pete, go home, Ringo. Um, and that was, that was a very strong memory. And I thought, well, who the hell is Pete? I mean, I, I had no idea. Um, anyway, you know, the rest of that is history. Uh, we went backstage into this scummy little room, which was their changing room. And I, the first sight was John wringing Ring- John out his shirt sweats, stained shirt into a bucket that was the height of his uh, his uh, superstar uh, appointments there and then we went to the pub and um, I remember um, Paul saying you know we've we've written all these songs but nobody wants to hear them because they were playing the stuff we know all the you know the um, Jerry Lee Lewis and the Mm the the super rockers uh, that uh, Liverpool of course being a port city it was getting that music earlier than most other parts of Britain because sailors brought the that music into Liverpool and and sold it I mean that was a scene which was to be repeated um, in my experience in Eastern Europe when uh, you could if you had a Beatles album you could get an awful lot of money for it
0: Right. I mean, and of course, Leningrad itself, another port city, was sort of occupied the same role in a strange way, didn't it, in the Soviet Union, because it was, it was, it was near the West and it was the place where lots of culture from the West or from other places came into the Soviet Union.
1: The other great port city, Vladivostok, served Mm. the same, was the same kind of gateway, a little, I mean, it was, it's funny, I thought it would have got its Beatles music later than Moscow, but in fact, it got it earlier. Because of these merchant seamen bringing the music in, so um, it's a fascinating stew of influences and avenues and ways in that the music got there.
0: So you're in you're you're in Liverpool, uh, uh, and or rather should have said they're in Liverpool. They're taking all these influences in from from American rock and roll and other places. They're writing their songs. So you're in the pub with them, and they're saying to you, "Look, you know, we're playing this stuff, uh, uh, but we've got." you know, we've got our own stuff and, um, you know, which at that time people were less interested
1: in. But a lot less, yeah. I mean, uh, so that they were doing uh, interspersed in their, in their, you know, repertoire in the cavern. It was a weird mixture of sort of show tunes and heavy duty rock and roll. It was a very odd and uh, personal list of material. Um, this was followed by, I mean, this first encounter in the pub in Liverpool, which uh, which excited me a great deal. I I um, I, I lobbied the local programmes producer, the bewildered producer of local programmes, about getting uh, the Beatles into the studio in manchester into the granada studio um meanwhile um we discovered that the the little film that we oh we went get get my dozer ducks in a row we went back after my uh, visit to uh, to the cavern club about a week later with a film crew and shot a couple of numbers from a lunchtime session. They used to do lunchtimes in the cabin for the office kids coming out of the offices and being thrilled to be entertained by the the Beatles. So we filmed that with some difficulty because the equipment was so very primitive at that time and it just blew our mics off the stands and so forth. But we got a version of, I think, Kansas City and and some other guy. Those were the two things we managed to record. And uh, I remember John saying "Do we'd shot one take of uh, some other guy, I suppose we'll have to do it again, which we did several, several times. Um, but it was, I thought it was, wow, amazing. Um, well, looking at it, looking at
0: it now, I mean, if you watch the, if you watch the the, the footage now, it's, it's, Sounds a bit ropey, but the energy is, t- the vibe is totally there, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you 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 wouldn't pass by without noticing that something was going on with those lads on that rickety little stage in the Cavern Club. And I remember when uh, when we'd shot our lunchtime session, I remember I, I had to stop my mini, I had to pull up, and I was so overwhelmed with the vitality of it all i had to be sick in a ditch before (laughs) i could carry on driving
0: (laughs) well there you go what what better testimony to the power of the beatles music than that Uh, so what happened next
1: we i I went around following the beatles in various scruffy manchester nightclubs um where they played then on a never to forgotten occasion i followed them to New Brighton um, in uh, just over the other side of the Mersey from Liverpool, and um, where they were on a bill with they were going up in the world with little Richard. Mm. And um, by then months had gone by and we still hadn't screened the film. And um, Brian was getting very agitated because he was relying on this as part of his you know publicity drive. And we hadn't film, uh, screened the film because it was almost untransmittable. Um, it was technically so limited, and, you know, so the soundtrack was sort of all right, but the pictures were, well, you've seen them in there, yeah. uh, where they finally showed up. Um, so I had to fob him off, but I knew that we couldn't get away with this for much longer. So I persuaded the, the local program's producer to have them in the studio, and they came in. Must have been six weeks after we'd done the filming in the Cavern Club, and did. Um, and they did there were a number of um, sort of uh, show tunes that they did at that time. This thing called "Till There Was You" um, was one of their one of their favourites at that time. So they did kind of slightly acceptable versions of their raunchy reality. And um, that that went down okay as far well as I could tell. But <clears throat> while all that was going on, of course, the Beatles were taking, taking off like a like a Saturn V rocket. and uh, so it was by then, um, within about three weeks, uh, we wanted them back on the show. Um, because they weren't going on any other shows that just our nightly little magazine show. So they came back and did um, another slightly raunchier selection of stuff. And um, by then, I remember when, when they'd come to do the first gig, nobody was particularly interested. I remember Ringo saying to me, you got us this gig, didn't you? Well, thanks very much. I thought, well, it wasn't very difficult. Uh, and then um, when when they came back, um, I think the third time, because they came back constantly then because they, the audience response was as dynamized as you would have thought. Uh, by that time, rather than being nobody who, Paid much attention. There were ten thousand kids trying to knock down the gates at Granada Television, and the speed of that was just unbelievable. I mean, I've never been alongside anything that had so much dynamism.
0: Uh, That dynamism, that kind of rocket-fueled meteoric rise. Now that that continued, obviously, throughout the sixties. Did you? (laughs) Were you sort of watching that, witnessing that with sort of? Know, sort of open mouthed wonder to because there, there hadn't been anything like it certainly not in the UK I mean maybe there'd been Elvis and people in the states but there nothing there'd been nothing like that and then of course as they as they um as they went the thing which is always seems so extraordinary to me is not just how fast they became so famous but also how fast they developed I mean going from doing you know slightly cheesy show tune covers uh, you know almost six years later they're doing these sort of psychedelic masterpieces i mean they're, absolutely
1: what um, well, yeah it's about even let even quicker than that i mean it's to this day it's a a progression of speed of development quite unlike anyone else i can think of it's amazing um and uh, i I I was mainly working in Manchester, or um, increasingly on World in Action, the factual series out of the country. So I I lost touch with the evolving, extraordinary um, development of, of of the Fab Four.
0: But that music. Means- their music stayed with you, didn't it? And I mean, you know, you were, you know, you were a fan. Okay, so maybe you didn't actually see see them uh, when it's in. And Of course, you know, by the seventies, by the nineteen seventies, it's kind of all over. Um, but it stays with you sufficiently that if we rapidly fast forward now, you know, all the way through to um, two thousand and nine, you make the film, and also, of course, you've written the book, How the Beatles Rocked the Kremlin. Which, is, which which? kind of brings these two things together, doesn't it? So there's, on one hand, there's your sort of, your life in the Cold War, your interest in Russia and Eastern Bloc and the other programmes that you've made. And then also there's this, uh, you know, this deep-rooted uh, connection with the Beatles. And these two things come together in that book and in that documentary. But, and, you know this is what we've been circling around, actually, is that how come, you know, the Beatles had such an impact in the Soviet Union. So what brought you to make that film and to write that book?
1: When I started to make films in the, uh, in what was then known as the evil empire in, in the Soviet Union, um, I rang into, well, early on, I ran into Art Troitsky. Um, and also... Um, a very cele- celebrated soviet journalist called vladimir posner who funnily enough i heard on the today program the other day because he's still going um he's much an american as he's a russian but vlad knew there were interesting alternate views of the impact of the beatles vladimir quite liked the beatles although he's a jazz fan like me but he was really aware of the depth of suspicion and loathing that existed within the Kremlin. They, the old man in there, thought the Beatles were dangerous. And as it turned out, they were. Um, they they, uh, they represented everything that the Kremlin was trying to shut down on. They were, uh, as, a, as it looked to the, the, the Kremlin, you know, ill-behaved louts who... Um, Carried on in in unseemly ways, and broke the rules basically. Um, and I was fascinated by it. and art. Meanwhile, was telling me, um, you know, if you think they were big in your part of the world, you have no idea what they meant for my generation in Russia.
0: Right. So art for anybody who doesn't know Artemiy Trotsky, who's uh, well, I've actually done a couple of shows with him here, and he's a old friend of yours. Is a friend of mine. He's um, I suppose if you're if you're from the UK, he's a bit like a kind of Russian John Peel. He's a a music journalist, broadcaster. He's been involved with the kind of Russian Soviet underground music scene for since the sort of late sixties, early seventies. Now he, and obviously he'd helped you on various other things, and he uh, himself obviously become a Beatles fan. And he is the person who really talked about their power, as you call it, the old men in the Kremlin. They hated a lot of things about western culture, didn't they? It was the Cold War and you could say fair enough we didn't like their stuff either. But when it when it came to music, things that they really didn't like was wild dancing. They didn't like improvise they hated improvisation, right? They um the stuff which might be seen to uh, arouse unhealthy unwholesome passions in young soviets seemed to be a particular a particular target, didn't it? So Obviously they hated uh, rock and roll. They, they were a bit more sympathetic at times to jazz, particularly the more serious chin-stroking jazz. But uh, so, so the Beatles, in a way, they kind of embodied a lot of that stuff, didn't they? The energy of the music, they were very good-looking. They aroused passions in young Soviets... Uh, so that, that was this kind of background to it. But I want to hear from you because I think there was another dimension which we've been trying to get to because there were other bands like that as well, weren't there? There were the rock and roll bands. There were the Western bands who were pretty boys. But the Beatles had this nuclear atomic effect. Why?
1: It's such a good question. And um, I think about it from time to time. And it's very difficult to, to easily encapsulate it. I think sex appeal had a lot to do with it for the Soviet girls, no question at all. Um, but when I put that question to all the people I got to know and interview and spend time with in the former Soviet Union, nearly all of them used one word, and that was freedom. Um, the music encapsulated a sense of freedom. Of, we're not going to do what we're told. We're going to make it up as we go along. We don't care what happens. That's what we have to do. That's what we will do. And the regularity with which that was uh, used as a as a some kind of explanation of what was going on there really got to me. I mean, it meant something. It meant the possibility of another life. Mm. Um, it meant breaking free of the, the awful, stifled universe that their parents and grandparents had, mm. had slugged along under. Um, and it, by the time the Beatles hit in Russia, they couldn't really just put you in prison. Um, they sort of tried, but it mostly didn't work out. Mostly, it was heavily um, looked down on and, and disliked and but they didn't completely shut it down and indeed every time they tried to do something really repressive about the Beatles it, it increased their must have ability for the kids I mean um, that that was um, you've probably heard about that from uh, from our lovely friend in in um,
0: whether they tried to stop them or not, it was, it was completely ineffective. Of course, first of all, on x-ray records, they were the Beatles, then increasingly on magnetic reel-to-reel tapes. And then of course, you know, later, other sort of ways. But in, in your film, um, you know, it's fascinating to hear all these different people that you speak to, the kind of metaphors that they use. You know, the Beatles were the first hole in the Iron Curtain. Uh, they, they stopped us being Soviet slaves. Um, you know, Kolya Vasin, in a num- Russian number one Beatles fan says that, you know, he became an exile inside his own country after he heard the music of the Beatles. It was like he became an internal emigre. You know, he he moved to this state of freedom.
1: And Which, Kolya wasn't alone. A lot of, of uh, the people I talked to said just that, that they allowed us to create kind of an alternative reality inside the repressions of well for brezhnev's Russia that was a singularly unattractive place for youngsters and um, so it's it actually of course coincided with a period when it had proved impossible to to slam down on things in the way that Stalin would have done either just put them all in a concentration camp or something that by, but by the Mid to late 60s, that was harder and harder to do. Um, I, I heard from a couple of other people of the reasons why the regime hated the Beatles so much. And let oppose them. My journalist friend said, you know, with his knowledge of how things looked from inside the Kremlin, what you have to remember is that those old guys hated couldn't stand being laughed at. Right. That was a really big deal. Um, They'd survived off the myth of, you know, indispensability, the fact that they'd always been there and would always been there. And there's these four kids laughing at them. Well, Mm -hmm. not overtly, of course. um, One of the ways in which the Beatles prospered in in, uh, the Soviet Union is, of course, they never made an overtly political statement in their right. lives, um, that the, the freedom that they radiated was about the, the content of the music. It wasn't, right. they weren't singing, you know, Bob Dylan or Pete Seeger ditties. They were doing their own stuff.
0: Absolutely, I mean, and, and you know Artemi, as you said, I mean for Artemy, he says Soviet culture was totally unsexy, and of course, if you look at the what was the official offerings of uh, you know pop music that kids were supposed to listen to, it was very dull, comic, comically dull, comically dull most of it, yeah, and um, you know, but uh, Kolya Vassin, you know, our mutual friend of late, lamented uh, Kolya, you know, and he's in your film, he's in, he's in my book. Uh, I interviewed him several times and. You know, there he is in Leningrad, St. Petersburg, as it became, with the John Lennon Temple of Love. Now, he, he, he was, you know, he suffered, didn't he, for, for his love of the Beatles. He was, he was harassed by the uh, Komsomol, you know, youth patrols. He was, I think in, you talk about it, he was dragged across a railway station by his hair. You know, he was, um, his, it didn't stop him, though, did it? It didn't stop him because for him, if you liked or loved the Beatles or if you didn't like him, that was the one... That was the one principle upon which he would judge you. So, his teachers or anybody of the older generation who were rude or, or, you know, dismissed the Beatles, that immediately, as far as Collier was concerned, dismissed them, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a marker for whether you were an acceptable human being almost. So, um, uh, and increasingly, um, middle aged people began to enjoy the Beatles and, uh it it was like a contagion that the the kremlin just couldn't contain i mean it was really um an unstoppable almost a plague that roared through the (coughs) through the the vast soviet empire
0: well of course the most the the most surprising thing i think in your film is that when you interview sergey ivanov who's who's became the deputy prime minister of russia And you know, well, tell us that story. I mean, about him being a Beatles fan.
1: Well, I'd heard that Ivanov uh, was 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 something of a Beatles fan, so uh, I said, "Could I talk to him?" And (laughs) rather to my surprise, the message came, "Yes." So we went into the the uh, the the white the the Soviet White House and their government HQ, and then I was greeted by this elegant. Um, well, well-shod, um, well-suited uh, middle-aged man, who promptly—and he's a, one of the most senior people in the in the party and in the government—eventually uh, under um, Putin, he went into this rhapsody about how when he was a kid. The Beatles were just everywhere and everything. So although he was being raised to be a true-believing, true conforming, politically um, obedient guy, he couldn't get over his love of the Beatles. And it was really fascinating to hear someone of his eminence being so obsessed. I remember him saying... Um, he used to study the lyrics as all that those kids did, and learned a lot of his English from Beatles' lyrics. And he said, uh, In um, A Day in the Life, uh, there was a thing about got up, got out of bed, run a comb across my head. And he said, I, I had no idea what a comb was. So I had to look it up in a dictionary. So he got some of his English tuition. Yeah,
0: that's quite common, wasn't it? And also, um, it's it's quite funny because you also say that he must, of course, have listened to the illicitly on, um, you know, radio Luxembourg when he was a kid, and then then of course he ends. Yeah, he ends up being a kind of pillar of the uh, of the establishment later on in, li- in life. It's quite funny. So as you say, it sort of infects the whole system. And whether art is correct, you know, that um, you know, it had a greater effect than the threat of nuclear missiles or or, un- <laughs> or, or the anti communist propaganda. It certainly did have an absolutely uh, tre- tremendous effect. There were became hundreds and. Hundreds of Beatles tribute bands, and I think the other thing which is really uh, m- touching about, say, interviewing with Collier, who expresses it, as you said, it was really about freedom, wasn't it? It was that somehow, mysteriously possibly, a combination of their image, their tunes, and the you know, the rather strange, mysterious words, created a door, didn't it? It created a door into a kind of another world which proved the lie to what was being said about the West. Now, I know that we also said a lot of lies about the Soviets. So it's, you know, this was the Cold War, it's propaganda. But I think, do you think it was for a lot of kids that, you know, and even middle-aged people, as you say, that they'd been brought up with certain beliefs about the West. And in actual fact, the Beatles in some way served the lie to that image of the West. I
1: think that's absolutely true. and. As the kids became aware of the Beatles, loved their music, <coughs> loved the way they looked, <coughs> they, they just lost faith in what their elders and betters were telling them. It wasn't the great evil that the party and the school teachers had been bashing them with. It was this lovely music that they liked and these sexy, funny blokes that they liked very much. So what was the problem? I mean if that was if that was a problem it be again they began to question the stance from which this was being criticized it more or less through their their ability to believe in the system in the trash can mm. very
0: very and, uh, Yeah absolutely and that kind of image that that sort of dream of the west the sort of the, the shattering of that image of the west and the re- replacing it with a kind of dream of freedom As you know, that propelled Collier uh, has propelled him all his life until two years ago, when very sadly, as I told you, that he um, he committed suicide in um, uh, in Saint Petersburg, and um, you know, under rather mysterious circumstances. And in some ways, it seemed that he'd given up on his dream of there being a permanent temple to John Lennon in. St. Petersburg, which was a bit nutty, of course, it was never really going to happen, but um, it was his dream, wasn't it? And, you, you you, know, you went to see him in the temple in happier days, and um, it was an extraordinary other world. It was a temple, it was a shrine, it was a religious place, uh, full of Beatles uh, stuff, ephemera, miscellanea, and Collier sat there like the high priest. And I wonder with the Beatles themselves or with Paul McCartney and Ringo if they've got anything to say about this thing, about this tremendous effect that they had in the Soviet Union. Of course, they had a tremendous effect all around the world, so maybe it's maybe it's just one other country for them. But of course, it, it, it is an extraordinary, almost spiritual uh, uh, dimension in, for some kids like Kolya, um, R.I.P., in Soviet times. Well, um, Leslie, we're sort of drawing to a close. And... Um, for you, sort of looking back, um, I mean, you've made all those films. You've made the film about the Beatles, but many other films too. And, you know, we live in a very different world now where the, those divisions between East and West have sort of changed somewhat. And sort of looking back over that time, over your time, um, you know, making uh, movies, uh, making documentaries rather about that stuff... How do you feel i mean how does it feel for you to have seen those changes from you know young leslie you know taken up to scotland in a strange pig farm to spy on the soviets to, to where we are now you know what's your sort of uh, take on all that
1: i think i'm lucky beyond reason to have been able to do all of that i really do i mean uh, and to have been financed and supported by a range of television companies and even some movie companies from California to Camden Town to do these things. So I just think I'm I'm just really uh, um, a lucky man. And um, to have been able to spend so much of my career um, doing the things I wanted to do, which turned out to be very much along the lines we've been talking about this afternoon, Um, between uh, looking at the relationships between East and West in a rapidly changing situation, um, looking at the cultural um, content of that, and just the sheer joy of um, being able to be an observer, a bystander, all of that stuff, I mean my Russian was never in any way remarkable, but I had enough to be able to you know embed myself to some degree in the scene in in uh, Moscow and St Petersburg and to know a lot of very crazy people who were part of that revolution um and uh and still remembered it as. Plainly, the most important thing they'd experienced in their entire lives. Um, even the most improbable people obviously had the feeling that they had been touched by something astonishing. There was no, there was no getting away from it, and they were. We all were. Um, As for what Paul and Ringo thought about it. I don't think they knew about most of that, that that was going on. I mean, Paul played a concert in Red Square in whatever it was, 2003, something like that. And I think he was kind of completely sideswiped. I mean, he finished up wandering through the Kremlin with um, with his wife of the time uh, and being uh, shown around by Vladimir uh, Putin i mean how how improbable was that <laughs> I wouldn't have thought Putin had any idea who he was or what it was, but he saw, but he sat at the concert in Red Square, and he felt what that was, which was a, a roar of joy that came out of that crowd in right i mean concert was right in Red square, right next to lenin's tomb, the perfect image of How the Beatles rocked the Kremlin.
0: How the Beatles rocked the Kremlin. What a great image to end on. Leslie, thank you so much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture to talk about your life and work and the Beatles.
1: It's It's a joy to go back and travel that road again with you.
0: So there we have it, Leslie Woodhead, OBE filmmaker. I'm going to put a link to Leslie's website in the show notes where you can see... The incredible range of work that he's done, films and books, all sorts of other stuff. I really hope to get him back, actually, to talk more about his life as a spy uh, and possibly also about Dean Reed, uh, the very strange um, American musician who effectively became a kind of communist pop star at some point in the future. Well, there we go. I hope you enjoyed that. And um, you can check us out, of course, at bureauoflostculture.com. uh, and, of course, on Silver Radio and at all the major podcast providers. I'm Stephen Coates, and I'll be back next time with another story from the counterculture. See you then.